Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from Cat Swamp Road, and I want to thank you so much for clicking in or tuning in, whatever you do, and for joining me today on uh, this episode of Idle Chatter, right? So I was going to say Farm Machinery Digest Radio, but that's the wrong show. I'm getting all messed up here in the morning. Well, it's really not the morning, but hey, what are you going to do? That's what happens when you deal with a guy from New Jersey, from Cat Swamp Road. Hey, you know, some people say I talk funny. I got an accent. I don't think I got an accent. I think the rest of the world has an accent. But hopefully, God willing, everything is going well for you in your life. And I was excited to get back behind well, I guess I'm behind the microphone because it's in front of my mouth. So I guess it's, uh, I guess you get behind the microphone, right? So uh, I'm in front of it because the microphone's in front of me. But I was anyway, wherever I am positioned, I'm excited to get back behind it and also to, uh, to just get with you because you guys are my people. So I want to thank you so, so much. And I'm not saying that tritely, and I, I, I sincerely, sincerely mean that. And... What we're going to do today is I'm going to have, I always say this to you, a little bit different type of show, right? And uh, and my intent is to make every show different, not the same thing, cookie cutter, right? Different different topics, obviously, but different ways of delivery, different, uh, different context to make it interesting and to make it a learning experience. But if you turn the clock back, and actually it's the four-year, I didn't even realize it, it's the four-year anniversary of Idle Chatter. So my first show uh, launched October 25th, 2018. So boy, did four years go quickly. And I could just think of how quickly the next four years, if God blesses me with it, will go. Probably even quicker. But to get back on track and not babble incoherently is that my whole mission with Idle Chatter and my website, and then was blessed with the radio show, was not anything that I did. Sirius XM Channel 147 came to me, and I don't know if I ever shared that story with you, but uh, I know maybe I will, but maybe later on. So, But the whole mission statement was to have a transfer of knowledge, because there was, there was no place for someone in agriculture to go to have a transfer of knowledge as far as their equipment is concerned. And, is, and, it's, and it's not saying, you know, how to get into where, where the, um, the shift lever is on a John Deere tractor or a F-150 pickup truck or something like that. I mean, I'm just making up ridiculous stuff. But to have a true transfer of knowledge of how machinery works and more importantly, how to diagnose a problem. Because the whole idea behind this journey, and I call it a journey because that's truly what it has been on my end, and it's been a journey for you guys listening to this guy from Jersey. But anyway, the whole purpose of it was that there was, as I was saying, there's no place for a farmer or someone in agriculture to go to learn more about their equipment. Well, you could say, well, yeah, you could go to a school, you could do this and that. And yeah, I mean, you could go to a school and learn about hydraulic systems and learn about engines and, and transmissions. And I'm not going to deny that. And there's some excellent, excellent colleges out there. But the thing is that that's only a beginning of your education. But one of the things that I felt was very, very important and paramount, uh, not was, is, the idea to have it have an explanation of how things work 
So for twofold, well, number one, for a much lesser degree, just so you're not in the dark of how something is, how a turbocharger works, an engine works, a hydraulic system, or whatever it may be, all right? But also, the paramount reason, most importantly, was that if you have a problem with something, you need to know how it works. You need to know how it works to a certain level. You don't need to be able to engineer it and design it from scratch, but you need to know how it works. And when it comes to diagnosing a problem with anything, is that you need to have an understanding of what you're trying to diagnose. And just like a doctor. So if you went to a doctor or you went to a, a veterinarian with one of your animals, well, we'll, we'll use a doctor as an example where it makes no difference. And you know, you say, geez, doctor, I, I, I'm short of breath or I have pains in the chest. And the doctor goes, well, maybe, maybe it's your heart. I don't know how the heart works. I don't know how your lungs work. I mean, so that's, that's absolutely ridiculous, right? You go running and screaming out of there. But so what I'm trying to say and being too verbose about it, using too many words, is that this show and my, my pod, this podcast and my website and my radio show is getting you ready for the day that you do have a problem with something. And that's really what it's all about because if everything is working fine and other than an FYI, say, wow, I didn't know how that works or how the turbocharger works or how a, uh, that automatic transmission works, that's, that's great, right? If you're going to go on Jeopardy and on a game show, but the fact of the matter is, is that the foundation is that I'm trying to lay a foundation for you so that when the day comes that you do have an issue with something, and God willing, you don't have an issue with every topic we discuss on the show, but you will have an issue one day with things. Mechanical things break. Mechanical th- mechanical things give you a problem. All right, and uh, that's just a fact of life. Just like you know, the weather will. You know, very rarely do we have perfect weather to raise a crop. Right. So sometimes we have windows of perfect weather, and that is really the focus of what I'm trying to do. So if I back up over with these shows and give you a foundation, we say, well, I don't care about that. I I, I just want I want to know what happened, what to do to. When, when this happens, well, that's what gets people in trouble because then you become a part replacer. You throw, what we used to say in the car industry, you throw an auto parts store at it. And I'm not going to say I would, be, I would be lying if I said that I sometimes did not do that because sometimes you're at your wit's end. You go and you, you, you diagnose something to the best of your ability. You make a diagnostic decision and you change that part and then your zippo no place whatsoever you're back in the same spot all right so there are and and as i said before in the show sometime that within every auto manufacturer if you were to look deep enough into their shop manuals which they don't even have anymore is that you would find something that says one particular point in the diagnostic process replaced with a known good part and that's really going to be what the title of the show is, replaced with a known good part. And what does a known good part mean? A part that you are, that you are f- f- sure of, that you have faith in, that is working properly. So somebody may be saying, well, a new part. Oh, well, we're going to get into that. All right. Just because it's new and in a box, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good. And you say, well, what's the likelihood of it being bad? All right. Well, 
Today, the likelihood is probably pretty darn good, specifically if you buy some kind of cheapo parts from China. Excuse me, all right? But also, the thing is that you cannot assume that that part is good. So what I'm going to do today, and a little bit more of a backstory, that I gave, uh, I think, seven or eight examples here of different issues that people had with farm machinery, trucks, or cars that came, uh, I'll say metaphorically, across my desk that came before me. None of these did I physically work on. Not a one, all right? So uh, I was involved with, uh, I'll use the word, it sounds impressive, but a consulting, right? I wasn't, I mean, I'm not a big consultant, but uh, the, these problems came to me and uh, and peop- these people came to me for advice. And let me look at these is that in every one of these, except, except two of them, all right, uh, they were not the person's, machine car tractor or what have you so how they come to me because i knew the person or the person knew of me that does not sound humble but it is meant to be knew uh knew me or knew of me and came to me and asked me my advice and uh and one of them is still pending so it's not fixed yet but i think i have a pretty good idea of why it is not fixed and i will uh excuse me i will go over that with you so sit pat get a cup of coffee or soda or whatever and what we're going to do is we're going to go through these step by step and then i'm going to give you what i feel is the take home message from this scenario because and i also want you to pay attention and another pitfall with diagnosticians all right and let's make let's go back and make an analogy to a doctor all right, so a woman goes to a doctor and she says, I'm making this up on the fly here. Okay, doctor, I got a bad cough. All right, and he's, he's, and he's a pretty good doctor and he checks out things. He says, okay, he listens to her chest, does this and that, chest x-ray, whatever whatever they do, right? And he says, okay, you have congestion in your lungs. What you need to do is I'm going to give you an antibiotic to, to relieve the congestion in your lungs. And this woman happens to be blonde, okay so then a week later another woman comes in and says doctor i don't feel well all right i'm coughing and what have you and he goes to his battery of tests just like he did with the first woman and he says to himself well boy this woman has congestion in her lungs okay but this woman is a brunette and the other one was a blonde so uh, the, the diagnosis i made before was for blondes not for brunettes, so I don't know what's the matter with you, lady, because I had a blonde that had this, but she had different color hair. Now, you're probably saying that is absolutely ridiculous, and it is ridiculous, and that's why I use it, because I'm a student of Zig Ziglar, and, and I mean a student. I mean, I, I listened to his tapes years ago when I worked for Allen Test Products, the oscilloscope manufacturer, but they were cassette tapes. Does anybody know what those are? So, uh, and... It is ridiculous, but but so many people do that in when trying to diagnose a problem with a piece of machinery. They say, well, you know, and and there are, all right, so the person's hair doesn't, color of their hair doesn't mean anything, right? Just like the color of the car or the tractor doesn't mean anything. So 
but there are brand specific things so if you could say well this this person has this issue and this person has very small lungs and the other person has very big lungs well that could be that could be a a, a, a deciding factor in your diagnosis but if the lungs are with if you have congestion in your lungs you have congestion in your lungs and i see this so many times in diagnosing and diagnostics and that's why i like to so there's two aspects of diagnosing. There's the foundational aspect of diagnosing because an alternator makes electricity, right? It makes AC electricity. And, and vehicles and farm equipment have alternators, all right? Does that alternator, does that AC electricity or that diesel fuel or that gasoline, all right, or that engine oil or that hydraulic fluid? Well, let's take hydraulic fluid out of this situation because sometimes people, companies have certain certain additives that they need. But does, does that electricity know whether it's on a John Deere tractor or whether it's on a Ford pickup truck or whether it's on a Massey Ferguson or a Fent or, or is it on a, or is it on a, a motorcycle? It doesn't know. The electrons going through a wire have no idea. So that is the found the foundational aspect of diagnosing for you to understand how it works. And that's where people put close their mind. And I've been in this for many, many years, since 1984 or 85, when I got a job at Allen Test Products. And I keep going back to that because I was blessed by that. And and I mean that sincerely because the, not only did the good Lord bless me with that because I, I, financially, because it was a wonderful job, and it, uh, I did very, 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 very well for a young 23-year-old guy, 24-year-old guy, right? Uh, and uh, very well financially, thank God. I loved the job. I loved the people I worked with. It was fantastic. But what it did is that it gave me a crash course on, I don't even want to say a crash course, it's probably the wrong term. It gave me the opportunity to be exposed to so many different problems, and that was cars and trucks. I mean, so many different vehicles of all years, makes, and models. So it would be just like a, a, a person who is a custom farmer. Uh, he does custom spraying or custom planting. He's worked on all different fields, all different soil types, or what have you. I only worked on my fields. I only planted my fields. I only sprayed my fields. So the thing is that when you have that experience and that blessing to be able to be exposed to Ford, Chevy, Chrysler, Toyota, Volkswagen, all right, yes, you'll come and learn and see that certain systems have their peculiarities or the idiosyncrasies will work a certain way. For instance, let's say back in the early 80s, when well, prior to 1984, Ford had an engine management system called EEC-3. And whereas everybody referenced their vault, their, their, what they call VREF going into the microprocessor, the engine control computer from five volts, Ford referenced it from nine volts. So, okay, so that is something that you have to know. So that's that was particular to EEC-3 Ford systems. EEC-4 and EEC stood for electronic engine control. So it was EEC-1, EEC-2, EEC-3, and EEC-4, then EEC-5. So, so it meant electronic engine control, first generation, EEC-2, second generation, third generation, fourth generation. So EEC-3 referenced off of nine volts. 
Why they did that, I have no idea. I'm sure that they had some sort of reasoning behind it where everyone referenced off of 5 volts. Okay, so that was a data point that you needed to understand that this is referencing off of 9 volts instead of 5 volts. And why was it important? Because if you had a weak battery in, in a Ford product that had EEC 3 and you went into crank on a cold day and it was slightly weak and the cranking voltage dropped down below 9 volts, so 8.9 volts, it did not start because it didn't pulse the fuel injectors. All right, whereas if you had a 5-volt reference and the cranking voltage dropped down you know, into 7 or 8 volts at one particular point, the engine's not going to crank or it's not going to crank fast enough, all right, so it's, it's moot. But so they were very voltage-sensitive on a crank with a with a with a degraded or weak battery all right so that was something that you had to take so that was brand specific all right but the theory of that the ecu needed to maintain a certain voltage during crank for it to fire the injectors in this particular instance all right or a certain cranking speed on the diesel engine a pump line nozzle diesel no no computers here no electronics old-fashioned diesel all right or a, a pull start uh briggs and stratton or tecumseh or a honda engine on a, a seed tender all right the thing is that so the foundational aspect there was understanding what how this how the system worked uh foundationally because all all systems work the same way the way it pulses the injectors using that as an example the way ignition coil works the ignition coil didn't care or doesn't care whether it's on a chevy or whether it's on a ford or whether it's on a rambler or on a toyota all right it's it's still going to function the same way with the charging and collapsing of a field so that's foundational that makes you uh, that that allows you to understand just the doctor understanding how the person's heart works all right and the thing is that and then the the second aspect is the peculiarities or the brand specific changes within that system all right so that is very very important and the reason why i'm wasting this time beating that into you is i have so many people contact me they listen to what i've said they read it they say well you you spoke about a a, a john deere all right and i have a massey ferguson and well it's it well that aspect of it is still going to be the same all right it's still the voltage drop all right still needs to be no more than a certain amount across a ground well no matter what it is all right whether it's a pickup truck whether it's a toyota whether it's a ford whether it's a, a 1955 chevy so so i want to drill home that it's that a good diagnostician has both familiar has it has a strong foundation and familiarity with the design criteria of what they are currently working on is giving them a problem and the thing basically is and i've said in one of my shows a while back is that well i'm a christian so i don't believe in jinx i have no idea what my what what the motor looks like inside my fiesta i mean i know it looks like an open hood but i have just about two hundred twenty thousand miles the car has been bulletproof like all my fords nothing never had a valve cover off and that so i don't know what the cams look like what the inside of the valve cover looks like i don't know what the what the pistons look like i don't know what the crank looks like i don't know anything i know what a crankshift looks like so that's wonderful because that means i've had no problems right so the thing is that if you have no problems then you never need to to employ 
or evoke what we're talking about here. So what you're doing is just like the strategic air command used to say, our mission is if we never fire a shot or drop a bomb, then we've, we, that we've accomplished our mission because we protected America from a threat. All right, so the thing is that if you never have to, so your goal with everything is to not know what the pistons look like in the engine in your combine, not know what the camshaft looks like in your pickup truck. Not knowing what the crankshaft looks like in your seed tender engine. That's your goal, all right? And the thing is that, so we need to have an education to achieve that goal, all right? So now I'm, I'm, I'm going around in circles here, 20 minutes. So let's get going. So what I'm going to do is that I have an eclectic mix of different problems here that, that were legit, real life problems. I mean, not, this is not made up phony malarkey here. Real life problems. But I want you to think out of the box. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the foundational and then the brand specific, if there is, of that particular system. Okay? So the first thing was my friend Bob Biden, you may have heard this story before. And he had a beautiful customer's car, uh, Idle Automotive. Uh, it's his shop. Beautiful 1973 what they call a resto mod dodge charger with a 440 in it our car had about i would say 120 130,000 because i eventually did see car was gorgeous it was done in some shop out in indiana and the and the person who owned it lived in staten island new york city which is a borough of new york city for those listening outside of this particular region which is almost everybody new york city has what what they what they call five boroughs and new york city is quite large so the new york city area so the jurisdiction of new york city and so you could say a borough is like a county but it's all within the jurisdiction of new york city and this gentleman had this ch this charger and what we mean by a resto mod it's restored but it, it may have something tweaked in it so it's restored and looks stock but may have uh have uh, a, a later engine in it or a later transmission or, or, or something of that so it's foundationally it's it's 1973 in this particular instance but you may say well you know it's a 73 but we 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 uh we put a, a 2020 uh late model hemi in it so they would call that a resto mod so the car looks like it's from 1973 on the outside but when you open the hood it's got a 2020 5.7 hemi in it which this car did not. So it was resto mod because it had a different carburetor on it. Uh, it had a, a set of shorty headers. It had a different intake manifold, but everything else was as it came from, as we used to say, Mother Mopar. All right. So what happened with the backstory with this charger? The guy got the car, beautiful, right? Put a ton of money into it, and car runs beautifully. He goes out, and what happens is that the car it starts to get hot not overheat but it starts to get hot all right so he drove it for a while it was in the summertime most of these cars are only taken out in the summertime all right and uh gets hot and it starts to idle poorly and it starts to idle raggy and then it comes and then it eventually stalls and then it does not start and then he gets it towed back home obviously very disappointed gets it towed back home 
by the time that was flatbed at home, by the time the flatbed gets it back home, all right, he turned the key, room, it starts right up and drives right off the flatbed into the garage. So he got stuck a number of times with this particular car, the same scenario, the idle quality first starts at the grade, starts off beautifully, um, starts off meaning that the, the little ride is going on, that the car is running beautifully, and then it ramps down in that way, and then eventually conks out, kaput, and then crank, crank, crank to no avail. An hour or so later, it starts right up and it runs beautifully again. Matter of fact, it got so bad that his wife said she will never ride in the car again because she's not, she's tired of walking home. And before she decided to do that, she says, I have to bring two pairs of shoes with me because I need to have a good pair of walking shoes for this car because God knows where we're going to break down with it. And so obviously it also, you know, then allow him to go any great distance, right, or on the highway, because he didn't want to, at least if he if he's, he feels it's dying, that he could pull onto a side street or, or a parking lot or what have you. All right, so we have the backstory. So he ends up bringing it to my friend's shop and telling him what the story is, and the car's running beautiful. So I had said to Bob, he has a dyno, the chassis dyno. I said to him, Bob, why don't you put it on the chassis dyno with the hood closed, make a couple of pulls, and let's see what happens with it, right? And he's, Bob is telling me this over the telephone. And what happened was that, actually I felt kind of guilty because this customer of Bob's reads me in Hemming's motor and Hemming's uh, muscle machines, he reads me. And then I had mentioned Bob's shop, so actually in a roundabout way I <laughs> sent this headache to Bob. So Bob does that, God's running beautiful. I said, okay, why don't you shut it off and heat soak it with the hood closed and let's start it up again, make a couple of pulls. And then sure enough, so once we got it hot, once he got it hot underneath the hood, I'm saying we collectively, I'm over the telephone, is that it starts, does exactly what the customer said, starts to run raggy, starts to run rough. A couple of minutes later, starts to worse, worse. And then it dies and will not start again. So I said to Bob, okay, that's great, because when you have a problem, the hardest thing is to duplicate it. You can't fix something, and you don't know what's going on, you can't see it, right? So I told him to, let's check the voltage to the coil, all right? So I said, put it, so he let the car cool off, the car starts, runs beautifully. I said, put a voltmeter, positive lead onto the coil, positive and then negative lead to ground. Let's see what the voltage is. So start it up. Let's see what the voltage is. So it's about nine, nine and a half volts going to the coil, close to 10 volts. Car's running beautifully. So I said, don't take the, don't take the, the uh, voltmeter off the coil. Close the hood and let it run. And when it starts to get raggy, run raggy, you know, look at the look at the voltmeter, see at the coil. So to make a long story short, so I don't go in for an hour with this, is that what would happen is that as the as it got underneath hot underneath the hood, not the liquid temperature, bullet point there, important thing when you're diagnosing something, is it a problem that that area is getting hot, but the engine is getting hot, or is the engine getting hot? All right. So the coolant was beautiful, 170, 180 degrees. <clears throat> It wasn't getting hot, 
but it was getting hot under the hood from the from the heat of the engine, from the heat from the exhaust, all right, the ex- from the cylinder heads. It's normal under hood heat. The voltage started to drop, 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 and start to drop down. Engine ran poorer, 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 and then ended up dying. He goes to start it. It won't start. It would well. It would start, and as soon as you release the key, it would die. All right. So now you say, all right. So fine. So I said to him, when it's dying, what is? It says, well, the voltage would start to drop from let's say nine volts to eight volts or seven volts. About when it got into the six volt range, it ran really poorly. When it got into about six and a half to six point two volts, that's when it conked out, and it wouldn't start. All right. So now, foundationally. We know that an ignition coil needs needs more than voltage than that. So the car ran fine at nine volts. That's con- that's foundationally application specific. That a Chrysler used a ballast resistor. <coughs> Clear my throat. <coughs> so what was the so what did I say to you? The engine would crank and start. And as soon as you release the key from crank to run, it would die out. So I go, no, 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 no. All right. Well, that becomes the brand specific knowledge. Well, the Chrysler would use a ballast resistor, and the purpose of a ballast resistor is to drop the voltage to the coil. I mean, to the points. Well, this had the electronic ignition system, but on crank, it bypassed the ballast resistor. So I said to Bob, okay, take a wire. All right, and unplug the ballast and go from the, the 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 switched ignition right to the coil positive. So we're taking the resistor out of the circuit. And I said, "See, vroom, starts up." I said, "How much how much voltage you have going to the coil? Like a ten and a half volts." I said, "How's it running?" I said, "The thing runs like a baby, right?" So I said, "Let it get hot. Runs like a baby." So all right. So now the take home message here that we need to understand is that you have to recognize in this particular instance now everybody was chasing a carburetor problem on this everybody all the other shops that he'd gone to were chasing a carburetor problem they were chasing a fuel delivery problem they were saying oh maybe it's in the gas tank maybe it's getting hot in the gas tank and it's a building a vapor lock it's building up pressure all right so everybody was chasing a fuel problem because it gave the appearance of fuel all right but all you had to do was look down the carburetor and move the accelerator pump and see that it wasn't out of fuel all right so everybody was going there and what the, the what was wrong with it is that the ballast resistor from it was a aftermarket chinese ballast resistor the guy bought a you know, changed everything, even though there was nothing wrong with the old one. The Chrysler spec on that ballast resistor is a was a half a ohm, 0.5 ohms. This one had 50 ohms cold, and then as it got hot underneath the hood, so as I said, it was the under hood temperature that was giving it a problem, all right? The ballast resistor, I think it went up to 400 ohms or 500 ohms, and it would keep, as it got hotter, it would keep dropping the voltage, dropping the voltage, all right? So now we're re-enacting re, uh, the crime, because that's what you need to do when you're diagnosing. You need to re, re-enact the crime. The thing is that when the car would go back home on the tow truck an hour later, an hour and a half later, it cooled off under the hood. The ballast resistor... Re- 
<clears throat> came back it was not at spec but enough for it to run and the engine would start and would go into the garage so we have two 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 important bullet points here no in this particular instance knowing how ignition system works and the second thing knowing the application specific that a chrysler uses a ballast resistor and knowing that when the engine cranks it bypassed the ballast all right so there's two there's two things that you need to so and the other thing all right the third thing is that it was a brand new ballast so bobby went to the auto parts store he had them line up a whole bunch of ballast resistors checked and they were all probably coming from the same chinese guy over in china they were all between 50 and 70 ohms cold on sitting on the auto parts store counter all right so they were all no good and what happened was that the the customer eventually bought a new old stock chrysler ballast i think he paid 150 dollars or 200 put it in there the car runs beautiful all right so those are the take-home bullet points and it makes no difference you may have a john deere track there may not be an ignition or ballast resistor issue but if you're diagnosing something all right you have to monitor the voltage if it's an electrical component right or if it's a hydraulic component you have to monitor the hydraulic pressure the flow rate the temperature of the hydraulic fluid all right all of this comes into play you can't just throw parts at stuff and everybody was selling this guy new carburetors mechanical fuel pumps tell him there's a problem in the gas tank and what have you and it was a chinese ballast resistor okay next thing next vehicle then we'll talk about was a a jeep cherokee the person uh actually was one of the women who worked at successful farming and it was her daughter's jeep cherokee it was um, i say older i mean maybe it was in like from the 90s late mid to late 90s all right and her husband the girl's father did brakes on it and put rebuilt calipers on the jeep the impetus for the rebuilt front calipers were were uh i don't know why he put calipers on but needed needed brakes all right so he put front brakes on put cal new well re, not new rebuilt calipers on the jeep and he puts them on there goes to bleed the brakes he can't bleed the brakes can't get a pedal on it can't bleed the brakes can't get a pedal on it right so what happens is that he's going nuts what he's trying to uh, he's he's going nuts and he's got the new pads on it new rotors and this rebuilt calipers and he can't bleed the brakes so what had happened was that he did not pay attention which is i'm not faulting him for because i'm not saying i would have noticed it but lots of times there in most applications is r and l right and left front calipers and could be rear calipers also if it has four wheel disc brakes but the jeep had drum brakes in the back and what what the auto parts store gave him was misboxed so one was so they were let's say arguably they were both left hand calipers so they bolted on fine the pads went on fine the brackets went on fine the line went on fine everything went on fine right but what happens is that why are there right and left calipers because of the orientation on the other side of the vehicle the bleeder screw needs to be in a different spot the bleeder screw always needs to be on the top you need to be able to push the air out and because 
he was working on this from side to side and he didn't and like i'm saying i'm not faulting the gentleman because i may not have i probably would not have noticed it i'm not going to say maybe i probably would not is that the bleeder screw on the one side because it was the wrong side the wrong side caliper was on the bottom so you're never going to get the air out of the system if you're bleeding it from the bottom so that is why it had no brake pedal when he ended up and this went on for quite some time i mean it's only two minutes me talking so keep in mind that when you do change a part if if there's two of them right <laughs> so like brake calipers and there could be other aspects of of uh things on a, on, a, on a vehicle or a piece of machinery all right you could have uh, two different bearings like on a with multiple bearings on a on a combine header right is that just because it came out of the box and it looks the same you need to line them up side by side and look and say and sometimes even to, to application specific take a a veneer caliper and measure it or something all right i'd say okay these 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 are the same so if he would have done that then he would have lined them up on the workbench or on the floor wherever he was working all right and the thing is that and say well these two bleeders are in the same spot all right the thing is that let me mount them and pay but like i'm saying that's easy enough and i'm not i'm not holier than thou i i very possibly could have made the same mistake so keep in mind that just like when i buy an oil filter i always take it out of the box and i check to make sure that the gasket is on it that the gasket fits nicely and that some yo-yo wise guy didn't take the oil filter and flip it to another into another box and and i have the wrong part number even though it looks close enough to the same all right so you need to always inspect your parts and do not think that just because it's new or say oh well i guess it's different they put the bleeder over here no it's it's the bleeder is over there because it's the wrong size the wrong side and the other thing you know same thing happens with water pumps if you take a water pump off something and i, I mean an engine water pump not a water pump on a on a uh uh irrigation on a center pivot or something if you take it off and you look at it and all of the all of the fins or the veins on the impeller are facing one way and the uh, and you get the other pump is facing the other way even though the outside looks the same they put the wrong impeller on it when they built it or rebuilt it or whatever they did to it all right is because it's a reverse rotation pump but also keep in mind if you take if you buy a water pump and the factory water pump has so many so many veins on it and they let's say they're of this design and you buy a replacement water pump it's brand new and the and the design of the veins is different or less that pump is not going to have the same flow capacity which is very very common the housing will be the same the bolts will be the same everything will be the same so for instance let's say we'll make up we'll make a pickup truck comparison because of the car industry being that you would be a car company makes a pickup truck and makes a sedan all right so whatever brand you want to say so we'll pick on chevy today all right so you buy a chevy c10 pickup truck or i don't think they call it c10 silverados i like when they call them c10s but anyway so you buy a, a chevy pickup truck and your neighbor buys uh, a caprice 
And what I'm saying is that this is older stuff because there's no more Caprice. Well, there is Caprices, but they're front-wheel drive. And they both had 350 engines or 305 engines, whatever engine you want, all right? Whatever engine you want to you want to use as, 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 as an example here. And lots of times, the water pump impeller that goes onto the pickup truck is a higher flow design that goes onto the passenger car. Or sometimes if you bought the heavy-duty calling system or the passenger car bought, they had a towing package for what have you. So it's very, very important for you to look at that, all right? Specifically, if the vehicle that you had, the vehicle, the tractor, the machine that you had from brand new. So if you had it, so if you bought it used, if you bought it at the auction, if you got this pickup truck and bought it with 200,000 miles on it, and God knows what happened to it before, then, then then you have to look at it through a different set of eyes. So that's the diagnosis. So the thing basically is, is that, so now it may possibly be that you bought this old Chevy pickup truck at some point in its, when it left the factory, left General Motors, it had the right water pump impeller on it. And I'm emphasizing the ca- that the, the housing, everything else looks the same. But it's a, diff- it's a higher flow impeller because the truck they know is going to be under load more often and longer than in a car. All right. And some guy changed the water pump and he put an impeller on well, it. Then he put the impeller. He bought the water pump. He went to the oil parts store and he said, Oh, it's all the same, one part number. And that's the other dirty little secret of this industry is that these, these parts houses and parts suppliers, now as the stuff gets older, want to carry one part number. So they go, Oh, well, this part number could fit everything. Right. And the thing is that lots of times that gets you into trouble so in this particular instance the person may have put a car water pump on it all right and now you own the truck years later the pump goes bad the steel is leaking you buy and say and the guy is a good parts man and he also deals with a supplier that is a good supplier not making one size fits all oh we got one part number and this fits everything under the sun every chevy small block since god walked the earth all right the thing is that and now you say well this guy says, well, I have two part numbers in my catalog, one for a truck and one for a car, 350. Well, you said you have a pickup truck, right? right? Yeah, so so give me the, I don't know what the difference is, but I'll get you the truck one. And now you take the new pump and say, wow, this impeller looks different than the old pump. Well, it has more fins, it's, it looks more efficient, what have you. That is the reason why. Very, very, very common, specifically as things get older. And also as these farm machines even though i'm a lover of original equipment parts farm machines trucks cars what have you all different types of equipment as they get older the oe manufacturers are doing the same thing to a certain level so if you went to john deere and they're retrofitting a part and what they're changing on it they're not telling you but they, they're saying the same thing well if we change this and change this we could we could only carry one part number and it's going to fit every john deere combine made for the past 30 years i'm making it up all right and then you buy it you say hey, i went to john deere i went to ford i'm happy i listened to that hot rod farmer i did what he said i bought oe parts but lots of times at a certain age then these manufacturers go and they try to amortize the cost so the thing basically boils down to the reality of it is all right and i live in a world of reality is that you know 
after a certain point that vehicle or that farm machine if you have to put parts in it is not going to be the same as it was when it was new or fairly new it's just not going to be it's just like you know a uh, you may have a woman you looked beautiful in a bikini when she was 25 30 40 years old now she's 90 years old she says well i still got the bikini in the closet well that ain't for you babe all right so no more and the same thing happens with machinery and a lot of people don't want to realize that and and uh and yeah i mean so it's catch catch can sometimes you get the same part sometimes you get a revised part oh there's a new revised part number usually it's to amortize it across many different models and many different years of production and is a compromise okay so we did the jeep next one we have here is a ford taurus that was stalling with the rear window defroster on you put the rear window defroster on and if you come to an extended traffic light the car stalls and then the car starts starts right back up and runs beautiful until you put the rear window defroster on and but it took a while for this person to recognize that it was evoked by the rear window defroster so if you brought the car it was not it was to a shop here in town a number of years ago you bring the car and it's a sunny day the car runs beautiful you do a diagnostic test the car runs beautiful no nothing right fuel injected taurus like a second generation taurus so it had elect fuel injection electronic engine controls but was not over it was overly complicated by 1968 standards but by night but not by 2022 standards right so can npf no problem found no problem found no problem found so then it took a while for the customer to reveal that it seems to it seems to stall when he's when i uh, it was in the winter time which is when i have ice on the rear window now most mechanics at that particular well, this guy is nuts without his ice under it nothing to do with it forget about it buddy that's just this guy's dreaming he probably doesn't know how to drive the car that's why he's stalling never discount what someone tells you all right you may say well this is bizarre <clears throat> all right but don't take it and throw it 100 percent away use it as a data point and keep it in your mind in this particular instance the person his name i think it was mickey mickey called me up and i said to him I gave him some ideas of what to check and he said rear window defroster so i said to him okay fine we, he says he says, this guy's nuts he says the car stalls when he has the rear window defroster on he comes to an idle and he lives and he and, and he and he uh, has to and he comes to a long traffic light if he comes to a stop sign it doesn't stall so i said to him okay mickey let's take the guy for face value all right he wants his car fixed he's bringing it to you all right all right maybe right church wrong pew I said, let's look at the let's look at this facts here. All right. And I want you to do this, to think talk it when you have a problem. I don't care whether it's a hay baler. Doesn't I mean yeah, it's not gonna be the same problem as this Ford Taurus, but I don't care you have to think talk it. What is happening? What is happening? Let's think talk it. What's happening when this person has the car stalled? Well, number one, he said he has ice on the rear window so mr jones when you have ice in the rear window what do you do i put the rear window the first one okay fine now also 
is that the most real window defrost is time out after seven or eight minutes or ten minutes, whatever it is. All right, so they time because they're high electrical loads, so they time out and and even so he can't ride all day long with the rear window defroster on. All right, you have to keep evoking it, evoking it, evoking it, and nobody's going to evoke it unless you had a kid in there pressing the button all day long as you're driving. All right, being a wise guy, <clears throat> when the window is dry. So I said to him, Mickey, ask him, ask the customer, when does how long after he starts the car? Because if he has ice on the window, that means the car was sitting, right? Most likely. I mean, so you can be going down the road and getting some ice on the window, but usually in the winter time, if you have enough, you have the heat going, you're on the highway, not impossible. But he says it doesn't stall on the highway, it stalls. Uh, okay, ask him what his scenario is. So what does he do? He says, well, he starts the car, it's outside, he, he starts to drive it, he goes maybe a half a mile or a mile, and he comes to a traffic light, and if he goes in the morning, that traffic light is timed differently than it is during the day, and if you catch the light, you sit there for a couple of minutes, and that's it, the car comes, and, then, and it, within a couple, a minute or two of sitting at that traffic light, it starts to st- it stalls. Okay, what happens then? Oh, it starts right back up. <clears throat> well this is okay so now we have a couple of data points all right the rear window defroster is on he only drove the car about a mile from his house comes to a long traffic light short traffic light it does stop sign it doesn't stall all right well what's happening in a long traffic light the car is idling what happens at a short stop light stop sign it's idling but for a much shorter period of time all right then you step on the throttle and you drive away what happens when you drive away? You're raising the engine speed. What happens when you raise the engine speed to the alternator output? Well, the alternator is turning faster in theory. It should have a higher output, all right, in theory. Okay, fine. All right, so now what happens when the car stalls? Well, for the past 40 years or so, that there was a relay that when you put the that when you well when you put the, the rear window defroster on, it the switch is actually evoking a relay. All right, when the car stalls and you go to when you go to restart and you go to crank, what happens is that relay is shut off. It loses its pull-in voltage. And these are all of them that I know of pull-in voltage to evoke it. So it loses its pull-in voltage signal. So now the rear window defroster is off. So he goes and he starts the car. The car starts right back up, all right? He hits the rear end of the froster, but now he gets on the, the two-lane road. And he's driving 50 miles per hour. He goes to work wherever he's going. A couple of minutes later, the, the, the defroster shuts off. So I said to him, let's put a scope on that, load it like he says, and let's look at the scope pattern. Well, it had a weak diode in the alternator, it was feeding the ECU unrectified AC and the voltage was dropping with the load of the rear window defroster. So what it had was a weak diode in the alternator. He didn't want to put a diode in himself. He changed the alternator and the car was fixed. So is this a Ford Taurus problem? No. Is this an electrical problem? Foundational, yes. But when you have all of so was this an overly complicated car no by today's standards by farm tractor standards by combine standards okay but 
did it come so you may have a combine you may have a farm tractor you may have a pickup truck is that you have to go backwards you have to think talk the scenario so it's both found in this particular application it was all foundational it wasn't anything with a particular to a ford taurus because they all reset the the relay when if it loses power and you go from and you go from crank to run so the rear defroster shuts off all right the thing is that the rear defroster because that's electric heating grid all right so the thing basically is is that so you have to so is this is this anything specific to a taurus no so there's no brand specific aspect in the diagnostics it's a hundred percent foundational but you have to think talk it so if you say well okay this is what's happening i go and i have a big square baler or a big round baler let's say that's because it's got the door that opens up in the the back to kick out the bale right the gate so you say i'm bailing hay i'm bailing hay <coughs> excuse me do you usually bail hay when there's snow on the ground no all right so usually most of the hay is baled on nice days right make hay while the sun shines and usually in warmer weather okay so now if you look at the doors on a big square big round baler or most hay balers there's micro switches on them all right and there's and they have to evoke and there's sensors to tell when the bale is right and the and the and the pressure in the bale all right so you're reading all of that the hydraulic pressure to squeeze the bale and then at one particular point it, it kicks the bale out right so if you say well i'm bailing for two hours making up the story this is a story but i want to just show you i'm bailing for two hours and what's happening is that the baler works fine the baler works fine and then all of a sudden it doesn't want to open the door and and roll the bale out okay so now you stop and you look at it well is there is there hay stuck in it are you, are you doing alfalfa well maybe alfalfa is you know stuck in there or what have you so the thing is that but i guess this is a a a a, a fabricated story this one all right with the hay baler but you need to think talk it well what's happening when i've been bailing for two hours on a 90 degree day well you're getting a lot of heat under there okay what opens the door is the door open hydraulically or electrically all right is it is so is the is this is the sensor or the switch failing under heat so the thing is that you have to look at all this you can't just say damn daughter baylor sucks right and the thing basically is so you have to think talk all of this same thing is like i said you could have you know very very common i beat this to death with you guys on this show almost every if not every week every couple of weeks is because the more electronic controls that you put in a piece of farm equipment or a vehicle a road vehicle is that the more sensitive they are going to be to the output of the alternator and the integrity of the ground circuits and all the connections that's the fact of life so the same like devil may care attitude that you had before with the old pump line nozzle diesel and then even have the headlights on all right it doesn't hold water anymore so you need to think talk it and if you have an electrical problem and i mean this could be your wife telling you this 
all right i mean it doesn't have to be a customer could be the hired man telling you this well geez, i put the tractor on or i take the truck and do this i'm feeding cows with the truck right i'm i'm um uh or i'm going and picking up picking up picking up bales you have a modified old pickup truck with a flatbed on it and you're picking up round bales and you have a electric uh, winch back well it's not really a winch but to pick you know what i'm saying so the thing is that you have to think talk this because if you think talk it then you will be able to say that these are real data points now if somebody says to you well you know the 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 uh, the, the, the the header on the combine doesn't want to lift when I see uh, when I see a bird flying overhead. Well, you know, it's all right, fine, okay. You know, giving you a little bit too much information there. All right, so you have to think, talk it, and you have to be able to have a filter and run through what's. But 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 in these particular instances, if you did not think, talk it, you would not get to that. You would not find that problem. Okay, next one. All right, is a. Uh, 2000 i think it was a 15 or 16 made no difference fairly new flex fuel ram pickup truck all right the, the scenario is is that it was low on fuel the person lives up in south dakota they were going with their wife and kids on vacation in the winter all right in january what kind of weather they usually have in january in south dakota right it's cold they were going to florida where it's warm all right so they they go to the airport they're going to leave the truck there they drive the truck to the airport all right and they then the husband says okay what i'm going to do <clears throat> what i'm going to do is fill it up with gas honey we're early right here at the gas station by the airport so when we come when we our flight is at night coming home we could jump in a truck it's filled with gas and we could we could drive back to the farm makes sense right nothing wrong with that decision and hey they have e85 here i didn't have e85 in it before where i was but flex fuel i've run e85 with no problem i'm gonna i'm gonna be a good farmer a good american i'm gonna fill it up with e85 plus we're gonna save some money at the pump by filling it up with e85 so they do that start the truck go park go maybe a mile or so half a mile and they park it and they go on a wonderful vacation they come home it's like 10 degrees below zero some kind of you know and they go to start the truck truck cranks 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 won't start okay get the truck towed right uh, it was a fiasco because uh you know it's 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 cold it's dark in the winter uh, get the truck towed they get the truck towed someplace and uh, and uh i don't know they rent the i don't remember what the rest of the stair was but then the truck sits inside the building wherever they towed it to i think it was a chrysler dealer all right they go home go to, they go to next not the mechanic or whatever it's that they the flatbed rolled it off into the dealership left it there all night guy goes start the car, truck vroom, starts right up all right well what basically happened is that if you're running a flex fuel vehicle, you have to know your system. That most flex fuel vehicles today do not use, and I'm not saying all of them, a lot of them do not use a fuel composition sensor. What a fuel composition sensor is, it looks at electrically, all right, the composition and puts a voltage through the fuel and looks at, looks at the composition of the fuel, how much ethanol is in it all right and then there is a table inside the ecu that modifies the injector pulse width all right 
and also the ignition time, but specifically inject the pulse width because ethanol, no matter what the ethanol, and I love ethanol, don't get me wrong, it has less energy content than gasoline, pure gasoline, and E85 has even less energy content, and most of the time in the winter, it's not even E85 you're getting, it's like E60, but it has a very poor rate of vaporization. So is this a problem? No, it is not a problem if the truck or the vehicle knows it, all right? Because so what will happen is that when, if it has a composition sensor, it's going to look at and say, hey, Jesus, this guy's got whatever, E72, right, in it, and it's going to modify, right, the cranking fuel that the injector is administering, and that looks at coolant temperature and air temperature, but specifically coolant temperature, excuse me, and say, hey, we're at minus 10, all right? We have E72 in it, and it's going to, I'm going to just call for a second. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to put the dragster on and get a drink. Okay, I didn't kill a mic, so you probably heard half of that. But anyway, so what's going to do, it's going to modify and they call that a trim table so it's going to say hey based upon the sensor says it's got e80 e72 in it right is that and this this outside temperatures ambient temperature of minus 10 degrees we have to put this much fuel in to get this thing to start because of the poor vaporization rate okay that's a fuel composition sensor believe it or not a lot of flex fuel vehicles don't use that anymore. They said it was problematic. I think it was about a malarkey, all right? Is that they actually look at the gas gauge. I don't know what's going to happen when these vehicles get to be 25 or 30 years old and the gas gauge doesn't work. So what? What? So basically, if they see the gas gauge move up, so this, this particular farmer, the tank was almost empty, filled it up on E85, all right so when you so the kids saw when you turn the key back on it looks at the gas gauge and says oh wow it's full now or the gas gauge went up higher all right whether you even if you didn't fill it you did a partial fill right so by the gas gauge needle moving it evokes a table inside the ecu that actually does not look at fuel composition okay at all what it does it it looks at the oxygen sensor and it sees how what the air fuel ratio is based upon the table that it would that it's looking at the calibration that the truck in this particular instance a truck that the truck was shut off when he shut it off to put fuel in it so then so what it does it shuts off the oxygen sensor and then it looks as you drive and it says okay when I say it shuts it off, it shuts off the correction factor. It's still looking at the oxygen sensor, so it's into what's called an open loop status. All right, but the oxygen sensor is there, still there, and says, "Oh wow!" And I'm I'm making you know making it very simple. It says before the guy shut the key off and before the gas gauge moved, at this pulse width I had fourteen point seven to one. Now at that same pulse width, I'm at seventeen to one. I know he has E85 or E72 in it, so we have to modify our all of our tables by, I'm making up a number, 30%, all right? It takes a, a few miles of driving for that to happen, 
four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten miles. Or it doesn't happen in a half a mile or a mile that he drove and drove to park the vehicle, the truck, this ram at the at the uh, what they call the extended uh, long long term parking. So he filled it up. He drove a mile. This system did not have a composition sensor. He shut it off. Took his wife and kids to Florida. Comes back. It's ten below zero. All right. The ECU is making its decision on cranking fuel based upon the E10 or E0, whatever he had in it before, but was not at that high of an ethanol content, and the truck was too lean. Why did it? And so it was too lean as far as the rate of vaporization and would not start. All right. The thing is that when it got towed, flatbedded back to the dealership and sat in the building all night, even if it was only 50 degrees in the building or 49 degrees, it was probably warmer than that, the truck started fine because even though it had E85 in it, it was close enough as far as the calibration was concerned to make it start at that temperature and then when he drove the truck home and went through its relearn process so the thing basically is is that the take-home message here is understand that if you're going to run a high ethanol based fuel that its energy content and its vaporization rate is different than e0 pure gasoline okay that's a fact of life whether the ethanol industry wants to admit it or not the i am a friend of the ethanol industry but it is what it is okay the thing is that and if you know what and you have to be you have to be an educated consumer and you have to be aware of what you have how your flex fuel vehicle determines that right whether it has a composition sensor and you also have to be knowledgeable how much you have to drive it after it sees a a a high level of ethanol versus the at the gasoline that was in it before the fuel was in now if he had e85 and he drove the 70 miles to the airport or 100 miles whatever it was and it was filled up with e85 when he left the farm and then he came back even if he topped it off a new e85 all right the thing is that it would have made no difference because the calibration would have been right to try to start it on e85 at minus 10 so that's something so then again you have to think talk it and it wasn't voodoo it wasn't what happened was oh what's going on here it was simple that in that particular scenario all right the vehicle is very very complicated and they call that when they don't have a composition sensor they call it a virtual ve stands for volumetric efficiency table okay all right so the next thing was that we had a a, a older c70 chevy grain truck with a 427 gas engine and it's making oil not burning oil it's making oil and how is it making oil you pull a dipstick to check the oil on it right and it's it's and it, it's above full oh it's good hey joe it's good it's above full let's go pull some grain with it right well what happened was that Whenever you have an engine of any type that's making oil, right? I don't care whether it's a lawnmower engine, it's making oil. You need the next thing you need to do is put that oil, take it off the dipstick, rub it in your fingers, and you need to put the dipstick back in, pull it out, and you need to smell the oil <clears throat> because no engine makes oil. 
all right has the potential to use oil but not make oil and if it's making oil 99 percent chance of the time it has gasoline in it and it's loaded with gasoline and when you put gasoline in the oil any fuel in the oil it's a diesel fuel and oil gasoline so is that when you put any fuel in the oil you're destroying its lubricity it's like putting roundup on a non-roundup ready crop all right come back three or four days later baby it's toast it's burnt so the thing is that so if you have an engine that's making oil all right then you have to say where is the gasoline coming from is the carburetor running so rich a lot of short in this particular instance it was none of that in this particular instance thinking out of the box all right the fact of the matter is is that the mechanical fuel pump had a bad seal in it so every time it pumped usually when the mechanical fuel pump old style mechanical fuel pump pumps if it goes leaks it puts shot puts a shot of gas out or goes out of the vent hole right what this was doing the seal was bad it was putting it into the crankcase because on 427 chevy like almost all of those old engines that the fuel pump was run off the camshaft went through the block all right so every time the the pump lever moved it was shooting the truck ran fine or it had enough gas truck ran fine but it was shooting gasoline into the crankcase into the oil pan and diluting the oil so don't just think that you may have you know a a rich running condition all right uh the thing is that you have to think out of the box sometimes also where is this gasoline coming from what is diesel fuels you have a lift pump a mechanical lift pump on a diesel and the same thing is happening where you're uh you're, you're shooting diesel fuel into the crankcase i had a guy contact me with a john deere tractor it was fairly new i think it was less than a year old at the time a couple of years ago and there was one that was made in mexico when they put the cab on it they crushed part of the fuel return line so this thing was running with sky high fuel pressure and it was running so rich all right but no visible smoke and and no visible smoke was running so rich that it was it was putting diesel fuel into the engine oil because the return line on the injection system was plugged okay another one is the last one and it was from a shop in town here a honda passport comes in and it comes in and the charge circuit light is on the red light saying alternator light but when you do a test on it if the alternator is charging fine or so it seems right charge circuit light is on and 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 then so what happens is that they, they say okay fine what's going on over here no excuse me the charge circuit light was on the alternator did not test fine okay call up the customer they call up say need an alternator mrs jones whoever it is i'm making up the name and okay fine ba 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 honda they buy a some sort of reman i don't know what they bought rebuilt reman i have no idea put the alternator on charge light is on okay so now we had original problem in alternator that was not charging they put the alternator on now the alternator is charging passes all the charge circuit tests all right and the thing is that the charge light is still on all right this is crazy right 
All right, the first one, the original alternator went on because of the light went on because it wasn't charging. Well, now this one is charging. Call up, they call up their supplier. There's something wrong with this alternator. Ba ba ba. Get three alternators from the same supplier. Put them on there. Charge light is on. Alternator is charging. Okay, you can't give the customer back the car with the charge light on, or the farm tractor, or what have you, because to them they're saying, "Well, it's the same thing. I can't brought it in with the light on, and now the light is still on." But the first time when they brought it in with the original alternator, it was not charging. All right, it was running off the battery. The sec now subsequently, after days two, three, and four, it's charging beautifully, but the alternator light is on. Okay. So now they go through this going crazy with it. And this is, you know, this is extrapolated out, not the two-second thing. And then what happens is that they decide that they have they don't know what's wrong with this car. They're checking everything, checking all the fuses, checking the grounds. So now what they do is they decide to go to the junkyard and buy a Honda alternator off the junkyard. All right. They put the junkyard alternator on, which is really had three reman alternators or rebuilt alternators from the auto parts store. Put the junkyard alternator on, charges beautifully, the charge light goes out. So they said to the customer, look, this is what the story is. We don't know what's the matter with these. We're going to give you your money back for the for the for the quasi new alternator. This is what it costs us for the junkyard alternator. So pay us for the junkyard alternator and the installation of the alternator and we'll eat everything else and you go away and you have a junkyard alternator but your light is out and it's charging, okay? That could happen with anything. It could happen with a with a, with, with, with a case combine, a case tractor, a John Deere, a Kenworth, a Peterbilt. So the thing basically is, is now we have to look, so we have to look backwards and we have to apply some foundational logic. Well, what happens is that obviously i said to them there's a component in the new alternator now lots of alternators have a i'm going to call it a resistor have a circuit in there when you start the engine all right and sees it charging it shuts off the light on the dashboard all right it's not a relay it's electronic circuit for the case of this podcast then it's going to be we'll leave it at that if you remember back the early back from the 70s the gm cars and pickup trucks if you started the engine and then you didn't blip the throttle the alternator would not charge and the light would be on all right and then what they basically did when they went to the systems integrator which was the internal voltage regulator it looks almost like a resistor when you put in there when you start when you start the engine it sees the charging circuit charging voltage that's charging and it shuts the light off but prior to that in the mid 70s if anybody's old enough if you started a gm car and it didn't blip the throttle and you didn't step on the gas you don't have to blip it so if you didn't step on the gas and raise the rpm off of idle the alternator itself would not charge you could basically start it and let it sit there and idle all day long if you didn't raise the throttle or raise the throttle raise the engine speed only a couple of hundred rpm that's so if it idled at 700 maybe hit eight nine hundred or a thousand you don't have to go five thousand rpm it would never charge and, and it needed to see the rpm go up before charging and what they did is they modified and they put this circuit in it and now everybody has that more or less same circuit in it all right 
Now, to get back to the old GM design, the Delco design, I'm getting going long here, the Delco design, what would happen is that when you first started the car, because they were carbureted back then, all right, you would set the automatic joke and it would have a fast idle. So it went from crank to the fast idle, alternator would be charging. So you only had the problem on a hot restart. You started the car, all right, on a hot restart, you put it in gear and you stepped on the, you, well, you didn't even look at the light, you put it in gear and you backed up, right? You stepped on the gas, went up to 150 RPM, the alternator would charge. People were not aware of it. So I'm now with these rebuilt alternators that he was buying, now you have to keep in mind that the take-home message here is that when you're buying a lot of these rebuilt parts, that they're sourcing these components from God knows who, where, and there was obviously some level of tolerance, not specific to that particular alternator, that whole family of alternators, because he had three or four from the auto parts store, would charge, but they would not shut the light off. So whatever component, whatever circuitry in that alternator that shut the light off was either of a different specification, all right, or they took it out, hey, you don't need this, Joey, and they took it. So the fact of that he had three or four of them from the same brand that did that, all right, it didn't, the circuit that was evoking to shut the light off, all right, even though the alternate was charging, and this is going to be very, very common moving forward with things is because they go and they source stuff and they say here it is this is what you need and they send it over to china or vietnam and they and they give it and they give it to them and say this is what we need and what you will find also you say well i bought an i'm, I'm making this up i bought a napa alternator i bought a this and that all i bought a well, re- the reality being is that they're sourcing it from the same part. There's not 10,000 companies making these resistors for a Honda alternator or a John Deere alternator. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you need to apply that thought process to it. And what proved this is that the alternator was charging when he got the Honda alternator in this particular instance, when he, that it, from the junkyard of all places, right, that it worked fine and shut the light off so obviously so you say well i bought one in this auto parts store i bought one in this in this tractor place i bought the other tractor place right you have to look at it that if it's a even though it's boxed as a well this is you know uh whatever i'm making up tractor supply alternator and this is a a rural king alternator they're if they're not even even if they're not rebuilt getting it from the same rebuilder historically the rebuilder is using the same parts and i'll close with this in this neck of the woods there's a a bakery bakery called anthony and sons and a very famous brand of cold cut is is boar's head so any place that opens up a little luncheonette or a sandwich shop or or a deli or a cafe they put up a sign they give them for free anthony and sons bread and and boar's head cold cut served here with pride okay the thing is that the two companies are independent, Anthony and Sons. So, like I said to the guy here in town, I said, I said, if you got Anthony and Sons bread and you have Boar's Head cold cuts, what's going to make your sandwich any different than the guy down the, down the road? All right, so you either have to, you either have to cut your meat thinner, you have to put more meat on, you have to do, you have to do something that's different, or you have to have a lower price because you all have Anthony and Sons bread rolls 
and the boar's head cold cut. So if I get a ham and cheese sandwich in Hackettstown from this guy, I'm going to have the same roll and the same ham and the same cheese. I come over here to you, so what's going to make your sandwich different? Well, the important thing that you need to understand, and it's going to bite a lot of us in this industry, because it already is, is that there, and as we lose more and more manufacturing jobs in America, all right, and Canada, is that they're sourcing this stuff from one place. So whatever is this diode or whatever they were using that the that the rebuilder was using, all right, in this alternator, I'm not saying he left it out, all right, is that he's buying it from someplace. The specification is different than in this particular instance, the original Honda alternator, and the light don't go out, all right? So, and I'm using improper English. That could really kick you, all right? You're in the field. The alternator stops charging. You say, "I gotta get this. I gotta get this crop in." I'm fighting weather, right? You go, go to town, buy an alternator for it, whatever it may be for a tractor, for the spread, for the for the plant. A lot of planters run alternators, all right. And the thing is that you know, off a hydraulic motor. So uh, the thing, the, the thing is that you get in, well, still the, the light is on, or, or whatever the incidents may be. So the thing, the take-home message here is because it's new and in a box just like we started with the ballast resistor it may not be the right specification very common with electricity with electronics all right because you bought a, a water pump it may not have the right impeller on it all right specifically if the stuff is older all right when you buy something that you have to you have to match it together like the guy with the jeep two left hand or right hand calipers the one bleed screw is on the bottom never gonna never gonna get the air out with the bleed screw on the bottom you have some kind of funky problem an engine is stalling something modern in a combine only with a certain load like the ford taurus all right it's stalled with the rear window defroster on you could put the rear window defroster on when it's sunny and 90 degrees it makes no difference all right the thing basically is is that extended idle bad diode in the alternator all right so we see a lot of different commonalities here we have an engine that's making oil we're going to feel the oil with our fingers from the dipstick we're going to smell it all right is it gasoline is it have diesel fuel in it where is that coming from we need to get that oil out so i just hope that you enjoyed this and i want you as and i went very long i'm sorry <clears throat> but i'm really passionate about this because i see a lot i'm not saying you guys in the audience all right so <clears throat> i see a lot of people that do not foundationally want to have any level of education they want to throw parts at something and maybe that's fine when you work for the township or you work for the road department you work for a big trucking company all right and you're spending somebody else's money say, hey boss i don't know we put three alternators on this this kenworth still doesn't want to charge i don't care keep billing the guy all right that's wrong also all right but when you have your farm your ranch and that piece of equipment when you're taking a time to do this your money your resources and you need that piece of equipment to accomplish a very very important task in your operation all right the thing is that you have to stop and think 
You can't just throw your hands up. You can't think that the, the hired man is drunk or your wife is telling you something. I told you a story about a guy contacting me. His wife drove barefoot. He'd put new tires on the car, and she used to get shot coming out of the car with her bare feet. All right? Then that that vehicle ended up having a corroded ground, the chassis ground. And why did the new tires do it? Because it was a high level of static electricity from that tire tread and compound that the old tires didn't have. So if your wife's barefoot is getting shocked coming out of the car and never got on a pickup truck, whatever it may, never got shocked before, and you put, even if you didn't put new tires on it, then that's a canary in the coal mine. They always like to use that term. You don't just, ah, well, well, wear shoes, honey, and forget about it. You know what I'm saying? So the thing is that we need to think, talk this, and it's a combination of foundational knowledge, which I try to give you here, and then brand-specific knowledge and familiarity with the system on that piece of equipment, a la the Ram pickup truck that only was driven a mile after the gas tank was filled up, and those look at a lot of vehicles, look at the gas gauge moving. So I want to thank you so much for tuning in, and I want you to know that the Hot Rod Farmer is pulling for you the American farmer and rancher, my beloved America. I wish it wasn't such a complicated world, but it is, and that's the world we live in. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.